Okay, Reed, are you ready for Barbenheimer? I'm sorry, who what now? What? Barbenheimer. Do you, have you heard of Barbenheimer? Is that a festival? What is that? Well, it kind of is. You know, this weekend marks the release of two huge movies in the theaters, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Ah. So this word is sort of a portmanteau of the titles. And it really is this online movement of people that are planning to go see both in back-to-back showings. They're going to go see the Barbie movie, and then they're going to go see Oppenheimer. <laughs> I thought maybe it was like where you get your hair cut or something. Or, you know what it was. The big question is, which one do you see first? Do you see the lighthearted Barbie movie first, and then go see the very serious, dramatic Oppenheimer movie? Or is it the other way around? How would you do it if you were doing a double feature? I think I would go to the more dramatic movie first, and then just sleep through the second one. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 340. 340. We're getting close. We're getting close to 350. We're getting close to 365, which would be an episode for every calendar day of the year. Oh, wow. Um, well, actually, by the time we hit that, it'll be the leap year. So it would have to be episode 366. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, lots of episodes. Uh, thanks for joining us again for another another week, another episode. I'm Reed Smith. That's Chris Boyer. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can find out about all 339 previous episodes. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, but you can if you would like. You can <laughs> you can go back through them all. But most importantly, while you're there, there's something called the TPS report. You'll see it up at the top navigation. Name, email address. That affords you one email Monday mornings each week five articles to get your week started so hopefully something a little value add for you the listener we'll pause here let you do that and then we'll be back with today's show chris in today's digital age your online reputation as we all know is crucial With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So, Reed, this podcast is sort of a follow-up to last week's episode where we talked about consumer insights research. 
Yes. You remember how we were talking about consumer insights being a way where we can gain this sort of deeper understanding of our customers. You know, there are many organizations that do this in a variety of different ways, but today we're going to focus on a specific principle that's often deployed when doing consumer insights research, and it's also very closely related to UXD, or User Experience Design. Oh, yeah, another three-letter acronym. It's the best. I'm going to only use three-letter acronyms from here on out uh, with with my team. Well, you might actually be using a four-letter acronym by the time we're done, because oh. we're going we're to be talking about okay. something called Jobs to be Done, or oh. as it's commonly called, JTBD. I'm going to use that with my kids. Maybe it's like a calendar in the utility room (laughs) instead of of chores. Jobs to be done. done. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure. Have you heard that term jobs to be done before? I have not. No. Maybe we'll start off by talking about what that actually means. And we've done some research around jobs to be done. This concept, JTBD, again, a four-letter acronym now to add to our lexicon. And in the context of user experience design, jobs to be done is like a framework or approach that focuses on understanding the underlying motivations and needs of users or consumers as they engage with your product or service. It's interesting, right, that they refer to it as a job. Yeah, so that's interesting. So, okay, we talk about personas and demographics and targeting and things like that. You know, we've talked about it here on the show. We think about these a lot as our, our, our day-to-day kind of goes by, I guess. So this is shifting a little bit it's around like what they're trying to accomplish or solve for versus the person. Well, actually it, it, it's, it goes for the emotional job that they're trying to accomplish. So it actually gets right to the person themselves. It gets into their goals or their desired outcomes. This whole concept is around the fact that users quote unquote, hire a product or service to help them fulfill a specific need or a specific job, as they call it. And that's why they call this jobs to be done. That's interesting. So I think we have considered a number of these things like the context or maybe the circumstances or motivation or something like that. I'm wondering, though, if we focused as much on the desired outcome. Like, I think maybe that's the addition to the equation. Is that the fourth letter of the acronym? (laughs) So to speak, yeah. Is the desired outcome. Maybe we think about what we want our what we want the outcome to be, right? A scheduled an appointment, for example, and that might be what they're looking for, but maybe not. I, I don't know. That's an interesting way to think about that. Is like you know where are they trying to end up? Right, because the whole goal here is to uncover those insights about their behavior, maybe the pain points or their unmet needs that they're trying to solve, and ultimately bring that into the design process. And a little bit later, when we get into an interview with some great people from Cast and Hugh, we talk about how this jobs to be done is part of the overall approach to user experience design and actually shows up in the user journey or in the customer journey that you map out. So it's not just practically the step-by-step, more I guess more task-based journey, right? Like now do this, then do this, then do this. But it's, it's ultimately the, you know, are we meeting that that need of, of them solving for what they're wanting to solve for it? Yeah. It basically allows designers to ask questions of the users. And that's important. You have to ask questions of the users themselves around what are you specifically trying to do or what outcome are you trying to seek to accomplish? What are some of the challenges you face? And what other ways 
are you currently using to solve that problem? That's an interesting question to answer, isn't it? It is. What about specifically in healthcare? So before we get to this interview, how does this kind of play out practically in in our space? I think we've got a few ideas here that we want to touch on. Yeah, we mapped a couple of them out here, and this is not an exhaustive list, right? So that we may be missing some, and if people listening in have some, let us know. The first is really we see JTBD applied in patient-centered care, where you identify specific jobs that patients are trying to accomplish when seeking services. Understanding their job to be done helps to design patient-centered care experiences that are aligned with their goals and ultimately improves patient satisfaction and engagement. A little bit along that, if you think about patient-centered care, it, it leads you down this path of you know actually designing the service, the service design aspect of this. So using these principles you know, to really understand those jobs that patients are trying to get done. So if you look at things, you mentioned scheduling appointments or, or something like that. You know, how do you design the service to then allow that to happen? I guess a little bit of a different way of thinking about it. Working with the caregivers to make sure they have availability for patients to schedule online, even looking at ways that they come in the door. And that you could extend the service design even further into the, another application, which is around chronic disease management. And I think you and I have talked about this before. Understanding the things that patients that are suffering from a chronic disease, how do they manage their disease in day-to-day lives? Medical adherence, symptom management, lifestyle changes. And using this JTBD framework to understand how they kind of work through that all. And I see this happening, by the way, a lot with pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies. They use jobs to be done a lot in chronic disease management. It's ultimately designed to make better self-management, better health outcomes, et cetera. Along the lines of service design that I mentioned a minute ago, um, I guess somewhat analogous is provider workflows and tools. So you can, you know, uh, apply this framework to identify, you know, challenges faced by healthcare professionals. So it doesn't necessarily always have to be about the consumer, right? It could be different stakeholders. So doctors, nurses, other clinicians, things like that. And so looking at, you know, how they actually do their work, not so much the work itself, but what are they trying to solve for, I guess? You know, so again, how do you streamline a process or reduce a lot of that burden, administrative burden, things like that? I'm going to stop short of saying automation, uh, but that's what what some of this kind of starts to feel like. And maybe that is the answer for some of it. Yes, for some of it. And this kind of leads nicely, Reed, into the last thing that we see where JTBD is used a lot in healthcare. It's around innovation. You can really identify unmet needs and underserved jobs, so to speak, in healthcare delivery, and that can give rise to opportunities to innovate. We see this happen a lot with other companies that are coming into the market. They have gone through, done enough consumer insights and JTBD analysis to address certain gaps and challenges in the traditional way healthcare is delivered to create novel ways that they could do that. And automation is certainly a way of, you know, to get into this. And by the way, in today's day and age, AI is a big place where we're starting to see this applied. So that's JTBD, right? Jobs to be done. And it helps to put this in context. We really kind of did a double click on that particular framework. But let's take this principle out a little bit. I had a chance to sit down with Steve and Jonathan from Cast and Hugh. 
they shared with me the way they work with health systems in gaining insights from their customers, patients, employees, a lot of different types of customers in their user experience design framework. Now, you may recognize Steve Koch. He's been on the show a couple of times before when his partner, Jonathan, joined him. And so it's a really great interview. So we'll take a break here and then we'll run the interview. And then you and I will be back to close out the show. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast, although today we should be calling it Ask the Experts, because we have two experts on the call with us today, and that's Stephen Koch and Jonathan Patheis, both from Cast and Hugh. Welcome to the show, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, awesome to be here. Steve, you've been here before. I have. Um, you've been on the show before, but Jonathan, you're new to the show, but we're really excited to have you here because you you both are the masterminds behind Cast and Hugh. Before we get started with today's conversation, which I'm really looking forward to, why don't we give you both an opportunity to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your individual selves and then Cast and Hugh. Thanks, Chris. And, you know, longtime listener, I guess maybe third time. Yeah, third time. Guest. Very yeah. exciting time. So my background is in marketing. And, you know, through that ad agencies, marketing consultancies did a lot of work across industries. And I was always drawn to healthcare. And uh, I was at this intersection probably 15 years ago of getting into customer journey mapping and human-centered design. At the same time, healthcare was becoming more consumer-focused. And I had the opportunity with the firm I used to work for to, to start Cast and Hue as kind of a spinoff focusing on human-centered design and, and really entering into uh, you know, that healthcare space. So um, since then, it's been, a, it's been a great experience for me. And so really, I focus today on using human-centered design to help our clients solve the wicked problems. And that really involves understanding why people do what they do. And then designing experiences that meet and exceed the needs and expectations of, of those folks and then drive organizational results for our clients. That's great. I always ask myself, why do I do the things I do, Steve? So I'm glad you're, you're an expert at that. But Jonathan, you're his partner on, in Cast and Hugh. Why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, partner partner in crime. I also come from a digital marketing background. I got into that because I, I, I wanted to do something creative. And I think that's this is a really natural first step for people with that goal. But um, as I got more into the branding side of things, I worked a lot on you know, CPG brands and, and things like that. I realized a lot of what we were saying wasn't really lining up with what the actual experience was. The brands weren't really like living into that. And then on this parallel path, while I was at that, you know, doing that digital marketing work, Steve started bringing me in to help out. We were at sister companies at the time started bringing me in to help out on on human-centered design workshops, like doing this facilitation. And I realized there's this really natural 
connection there between this empathy piece of it, right, of understanding people and listening to them and understanding their needs. And I, I had like the sociology background, so I just ate that stuff up. And then the creative piece of like creativity, but like doing it around solving problems and doing that collaboratively with people. So I switched paths really quickly, came on to cast into you, and then now Steve and I are the ones uh, at the helm. That is awesome. And I mean, I'm a really big fan of what you guys do and the particular focus of what your organization does, because I think it's really important. Um, This whole concept of human-centered design, you know, I first heard of this, I don't know how many years ago I heard about it. And at first I thought, you know, human-centered design, isn't all design human-centered? And I was surprised to think that maybe that isn't true. So Steve, why don't we first start off by how do you define human-centered design and why is it so important for us? It's a very good question. And I mean, you know, to put it simply, it's designing with the human at the center, right? But what does that actually mean? And it, it means really building that empathy for somebody and the experience they're going through and then ensuring that you're designing for what their challenges are, what they're trying to accomplish and hearing it straight for them, not making assumptions. And oftentimes it means designing side by side. We do a lot of co-design in our world, bringing patients in, bringing healthcare consumers in, bringing employees in and, and designing together. So, you know, I was really drawn to it because too often I saw experiences that were just designed based on assumptions that leaders made or, you know, just executives that got in a room and decided they knew best. And that's, still happens today. But when you use empathy and you really put the person who is experiencing what you're designing at the center, you just create much more impactful experiences. It's, it's like a cheat code. I like that. Like a cheat code. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great definition of that because you are right to co-create with the actual users of that, whatever experience or design that you're doing is a critical part of that. You know, and Reed and I recently were talking about on a, on a previous episode of the show around, you know, consumer insights research and how that's so critical. Human-centered design is really an output of really good consumer insight research. Some of us understand conceptually, you know, what doing consumer insights research. I think a lot of us are kind of sometimes struggle with how do you, you know, the, how do you begin in a human-centered design project or an effort? So Jonathan, maybe we could discuss a little bit about the foundation of how to begin this, how to how to start down this path. One of the things that I guess kind of uh, before we start anything, it's understanding this decision-making, right? And I think there's a lot of value in understanding decision-making. And that's something that has human-centered design at its core, right? We know that this is really crucial, especially in healthcare right now, you know, as people are making decisions around where to get care, where they're going for a referral or uh, you know, getting specialty care and things like that. We use, uh, you know, on top of that, in order to get to that decision making, we use something called jobs to be done. It's this this lens or framework that's really it's this theory of consumerism, but it starts with needs and then it pulls together all these different ways that people make decisions around purchasing uh, a product or hiring a service or something along those lines. Right. So it's understanding. You know, you talked a little bit about on this on the podcast uh, last week about market research and things like that. It's about understanding the market. It's about understanding competitors, how people shop, select. So, there, people are essentially hiring a product or service in order to make progress in their lives, right? So they're trying to, they might have an unmet need. They're trying to close that gap, and they're trying to 
enter a more desirable state. And when we can understand what that progress that people are trying to make, maybe it's somebody wants to be more in control of their healthcare, or they want to feel like they're able to reliably do the things that they, they always wanted to do. Maybe it's something that simple. But when you understand those kind of desired outcomes or that longer term progress, it's going to be ongoing. Then you can really start designing around that job to be done. Understanding those levers of you know why people might make a choice one way or another really helps you differentiate from competitors. It helps with acquisition, getting getting in front of new people who are making that switching choice, but then also loyalty of you know maintaining current consumers or maybe it's employees, um, anything along those lines. That understanding the jobs to be done really starts to get into knowing that customer or knowing the the person that's involved, the human, so to speak, right, that we're centering this design around. And then is when we start to begin the journey mapping. Is is that the right sequence, Steve? I think that's a really important way to look at it because when jobs to be done as that framework, you start to get that understanding. I think one core element is it identifies the uh, the needs a person has that they're trying to satisfy and not just the functional needs, which we often as a trap get caught looking at like, oh, we have X number of locations and X number of physicians and we've done it for this many years. But really people make decisions based on their emotional needs and their, and really even their social needs. What will my friend base think of me if I do this? What, what will they think if I go down this path? Jobs to be done uncovers that. And then when you can do journey mapping with that foundation of jobs to be done, it, it takes it beyond just like simple touch points and actions that are important, but it goes beyond that um, and gets to those needs that are driving decision-making and then understanding where those needs are most prevalent. So then you can be more precise in solving those issues, developing the messaging, the marketing strategies, the experiences that are really meeting the needs of your healthcare consumers, your patients, your customers, your employees. And so I think that's where jobs to be done can really kind of supercharge journey mapping because when you think about needs, there's this gap between that current state and the ideal state. And so when we understand where those gaps exist in journey mapping, we're that much more better at designing that ideal state. I think it makes sense. And I myself have sometimes gone right to the journey map before understanding the reason why these decisions were being made. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The one thing I'm kind of confused about, because there's also a lot of personas and segmentation that goes along in all of this. Jonathan, help me understand how that fits into the overall effort here. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole point of trying to understand needs and and trying to understand, you know, our patients, our consumers better is we want to be able to better speak with them, right? We want to be able to better market to them. And and traditionally, you've seen a lot of, you know, there's demographic segmentation, which is like saying, okay, let's group these people based on their age, their location, their salary, something like that. And then there's psychographic segmentation, which is more focused on, you know, beliefs, values, and opinions. We kind of take that approach more, but we take it one step further of saying, we start with that decision-making driver. What is that desired state that that person has? 
And then we build, we call them demand profiles, but it's a persona and it's essentially segmenting people by their decision-making drivers, because this is obviously the best way to segment customers because people don't make decisions based on their age. They make decisions based on their needs, right? And the progress that they're, they're trying to make in life and those emotional needs, especially. So this helps us also go a little bit beyond these personas are a little bit less focused on correlation, right? Of, of just grouping people based on their similarities. It's more focused on what are the things that are driving that decision-making? What are the what are the causes behind that? So it's more causation-focused as opposed to correlation-focused, which is great. I like this concept of demand profiles because it's a different way to look at how you segment your audience, right? I, a lot of us in, in this space, if you're not understanding how the human part of this design effort you sometimes like say, well, you know, let's take psychographic segmentation purposes. People under the age of 25 do it this way, et cetera. This actually kind of cuts through that old-fashioned way of segmenting your audience and actually gets into understanding, again, back to the, co- the, the core of this, is understanding how people are making decisions. And I think this leads to this concept that, Steve, you mentioned before we started recording. Uh, you said that we now know more than ever about people as data, but we don't know people as humans. So let's expand on that a little bit, because I think that's a kind of a profound statement. We talk so much about big data. We've been talking about it for years, right? And we see it everywhere. We have operational data. We have satisfaction data. We have demographic data. We have, you know, we have readouts from the contact center. We have the EHR. We have more than ever before. And... It could be so overwhelming that at the same time, we could feel like, well, we know so much about our customer, about our patient, that that we totally understand these folks that we serve. That can definitely be a trap because what you have is you have a whole lot of what. But for impacts, for, for insights to be really impactful, we have to move beyond the what and we have to get to the why. And so... You know, big data gives us a lot of the what. We've seen an increase in people switching primary care in the last two years. We've seen a drop in knee replacement surgery. We've seen nurse turnover increase. It's hard to get to the why. And even if you ask somebody on a survey, you're just going to get kind of that, that surface level answer. And so you really need to dig deep to understand that ideal state they're trying to achieve that you can't really get from a survey or even a focus group. So, you know, you talked about that example uh, last week uh, around the hybrid ED urgent care situation, and you saw the data of people being dissatisfied, and that gave you the what, and then you dug in and got to the insights that gave you to the why, got you to the why, and it helped you design that. And that's what jobs to be done and journey mapping allow us to do is really dig in far below the surface, because those are where we get the insights that really impact business results, that really impact how people are behaving so that we could design these experiences that will, you know, and and this is so important in this era that will help us, you know, make an impact on our business and and create better experiences for people. Well, just one thing that I'll add to that is it's easy to get a lot of information, right? You can get a lot of voice of the customer. You can get a lot of, we talked about surveys and focus groups and things like that. But to really understand some of the insights that we're driving at, it needs to be an in-depth interview in order to continue to peel back some of those layers and and go really deep on what's lying under the surface. Because you might say, well, this is easy. We could send out a survey and ask people how they're feeling about something. But they're probably not going to be as forthcoming with that information as they would if you 
sat down and really started getting the context for them, developing empathy in a one-on-one scenario. So, so much of the work that we do are in-depth interviews and they might take a little bit more time, but we get so many more rich insights out of that to get to that why, how do you get there? So That's not to say, right, that this quantitative data that you gather through surveys and all the you know data that you have in, inside is not useful. Right, right. But you're, you're going one step further now. This is really taking it into understanding, getting those insights from the consumer to why did you make this choice? Why did you wait six months before you, you know, presented at a doctor with your knee pain? What was the impetus to get you there? These are the things that really are golden nuggets if you could kind of figure it out, because that could truly inform the design of whatever you're, you're trying to create, right? It gets you to the differentiator. Right. Because if you're on the surface level, getting those surface level insights, you're going to have the same insights as everybody else. But if you're going to differentiate and create an experience that people prefer, then you need to get to these types of insights that are that are really, like you said, golden, that that help you make the changes, design the experiences that are that are going to be transformative. To your point, I think they're very complimentary. I'm not please don't mistake me saying that quant i'm all qual no quad I, yeah they work so well together it's just a matter of being able to to get both and and realizing that you need both in order to to really get to what we're talking about. yeah there's so much quant today it's easy to depend on it but you need both it sure is and there's different levels of qualitative too that you're you're kind of alluded to right it's not just putting people in a focus group because we all know about the pressures of being in a focus group and answering in, in, in similar ways. And I also know the bias of a PFAC, a patient family advisory council. It's getting to that one-to-one level to really, to really drive in. That's the whole concept behind co-creation, right? You know, when you think about co-creation, it's, it could be easy to say, okay, we've got all these great insights. We've learned a lot. Now let's go solve the problem. But co-creation makes it so powerful to solve that problem, create that new experience side by side with the person you're designing for. And I think that's, you know, we do a lot of design sprints where we'll get into that with um, where we've identified some of these opportunities to create better experiences and get into that with patients, with consumers, with employees. And it makes it so much more powerful because not only are your end users and you think about the the state today of we have a lot of nurse turnover and other and within other caregivers and care teams and all these challenges about how do we create that right culture with cost ballooning and things like that well let's create a culture that that people you know if employees co-design it with us not only are we designing something that we know is meeting their needs but it's going to be they're going to be ready to go out there and sell it through to their peers and they're because it's something that they're proud of and it's something that they know is going to meet their needs and you know we see time and time again just our assumptions aren't there we've known that our whole lives but we sometimes we continue to work off assumptions and uh co-design really blocks against that. It gives you in a puts you in a position to really hear consistently throughout the design process, both from building the insights to actually designing the experiences from the end user, the person you serve. So you ensure that you're really meeting their needs. I'm really glad that you brought up the fact, Steve, that you can actually apply this for opportunities such as like, you know, employee burnout or other internal things. Because this is not just consumers we're talking about. I mean, although it is used a lot in consumers and digital front door expressions and all these other things, there are a lot of different use cases in which you can apply this in a health system. You know, when you think about and drill down to the to the core of jobs to be done and journey mapping and 
understanding the needs and the motivations that drive behavior and decision making, understanding where those gaps are in the experience, understanding the friction points. I've done so much focus on patients, but it's just as important for care teams, for administrative teams, for employees overall, because when we can see that and then start looking at all of those experiences together and understanding, oh, we see a gap in the patient experience, what's happening in the employee experience there? And other examples like that, it, it could be very powerful. And then, and just as I said, the co-design element is powerful as well. So especially, you know, in these times, I think looking at it from that holistic perspective of everybody's journeys through your organization, um, you have an opportunity to, to get that much more, uh, be that much more effective. To kind of piggyback off of that, the the impact that you can have on recruitment, if you're one of those out there who's in the market trying to hire you know, the best staff and you show that you are taking this approach or you're understanding how those people are making decisions about where they decide to go work, but then also preventing you know, that retention, making sure that your employees are staying at your organization because you're understanding what's driving them to change. What are the, what are the forces that might be pushing them toward um, seeking a new opportunity as opposed to staying with you? So there's there's a lot of value there, both on the recruitment side and the retention side when it comes to the employee piece. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, as I think about that, and some of the the, the human centered design projects that I've been involved with, you know, involve both the patient and the caregiver, because you have to kind of design around both of their experiences, right? It's not one thing to make it easier for patients to, let's say, make an appointment with you. You also want to make it easier on the caregiver to accept that appointment and move that through their workflow. So it's almost like you're, it's multi-threaded, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I even see opportunities to look at process from this of using human centered design to understand from the care teams okay where where are you running into barriers and how can we start to solve those problems and and save time from your day because we know you know you talked about burnout we know what an important issue that is and so there's there's a lot of different ways to look at it from the friction points to the emotions to to all different elements obviously people listening in there they're thinking this makes total total sense here right now. But in the reality of our situation where we're at in the health system, we're kind of strapped, right? We're, we're having a lot of issues. We're having employee burnout. We're having you know access issues. We're having financial constraints, et cetera. How have you both worked with organizations in showing the value of doing these projects? Because to me, it's, there's a lot of value in it, but you have to show the value up front. Well, I, you know, I think that's a really good point. You look at... You know, I was, I was, I was, I saw some really interesting statistics at the HMPS conference a couple of months ago down in Austin, where, you know, we we've been doing this marketing and healthcare focused on consumerism for the last fifteen plus years, and yet something that stood out to me was that the average healthcare consumer visits four point five different healthcare brands a year, and so we're not seeing loyalty. We're seeing huge increases in. Uh, people going to urgent cares and getting new types of care. We're seeing people put off care. And so we're at this point where behaviors have changed. Um, We're not seeing loyalty. Our front door isn't getting as many visits as it used to. And so I think it's more important than ever to show that value about how we can impact the decisions people make that that will impact the business of the healthcare organization. And so that's what we're seeing in terms of how we're working with clients is 
a lot more focus on things such as referrals. Um, are we seeing leakage? How can we better understand that journey so that we can create the best journey that, that helps people um, stay within our health system? Or how can we better understand how we work better with employees? Yeah, we recently did a project. And, and you know, to, to see the value, you're looking at, hey, referrals have dropped. Let's use this as a metric and see if we can impact this by understanding why those referrals have dropped, right? So, we interviewed referring providers to specialties at, at a specific hospital. And what we found were a lot of insights that, you know, there's the obvious, right, that those obviously come up. But then there's a lot of insights there of, hey, these are small changes or, you know, bigger initiatives that we can take throughout the organization that we know are going to move the needle on this. These are things that people are directly asking for saying, I will refer, refer more business if this need was met which is really, really straightforward. But that's that metric that you can look at and say, okay, was there value of us moving forward with this initiative to meet this need? And here's the, the specific metric that we're going to look at. It's, you know, it's referrals from outside because we know that's, that's massive. Or maybe it is leakage. It's, it's saying, let's see how many of those appointments that we are scheduling, people are actually following through on, right? That's a metric that's really easy to, to, to look at. That was something that we found is that you know, people were scheduling appointments, but they weren't showing up for them. And so what's the why behind that? What are the reasons why people aren't showing up for this appointment? You know, and what's great about that, the way you described it, the both of you described this is that you're, you're taking a concept of like trying to understand the why of the person, you know, engaged in this design, if it's a consumer or an employee or what have you, um, which is a very nebulous kind of thing, but you're tying it back to an actual business challenge a strategic business challenge. And that right there shows a lot of value around going down this path because you could throw as much you know, money towards a problem as you want, but if you aren't solving the human behavior behind it, you're not going to solve it, right? It, I think about like you could put online appointment scheduling all over your website if you want, but if people aren't willing to take that that online appointment or make an appointment that way with a oncologist or whatever, a cancer doctor, then that's wasted money, right? It's not about designing it for design's sake. It's about designing it because it's going to prove value to your organization. It's about doing things deliberately because too often we want to speed, right? Like your example, let's speed to get the online appointments up. But if, if we don't take the time to understand what that experience has to be to better meet the needs of patients and, and healthcare consumers, then we're going to be going through this exercise that we all often go through where months later, we're going back to relook at it and we we're, we're redoing it and we're changing this and we're changing that. And that costs more money and it costs time. And oftentimes that's when we'll be brought in to say, okay, let's take a look at this and get an understanding of why we're not hitting these numbers that we thought we were going to hit when we when we launched X, Y, or Z. And so it's getting that foundational information could be so valuable, especially today, because we know everything an organization does needs to translate to the bottom line. And so we need to make sure that we're accomplishing that. Yeah. And involving a lot of people within the organization to help support this. This is more than just like a digital thing or a marketing thing. This is 
This is strategy. This is operations. This is clinical. There's so many people involved in this. And I think that's a really good point and, and something that we emphasize with our clients and something our clients really appreciate because oftentimes we know how siloed healthcare organizations can be, but we drive home is that to be successful, we have to bring all those people together. We can't just be one department creating something that just doesn't work that way. Um, so breaking down those silos can be a, a, a huge benefit of, of this type of work and having these folks from different parts of the organization hear from the patients directly and understand their stories directly. It's so much more powerful than a spreadsheet. Guys, this conversation has been so informative and so interesting. I could talk to you guys all day. But uh, before we close out the the interview today, I, I know there's a lot of people who probably want to carry on the conversation with you. Um, they might want to do it online. What's a good way for them to reach out to you? Visit our website, which is castandhue.com. So C-A-S-T-A-N-D-H-U-E.com. And then also Jonathan and I are on LinkedIn. So Steve Koch, K-O-C-H, and Jonathan Patheis, P-A-T-H-U-I-S. And we're, yeah, always happy to continue on the conversation and just learn from each other. That's a big part of, you know, how we approach human-centered design is is the more we can all connect and learn from each other, the the more progress we can all make in the, in this world of making healthcare better for people. I love that. That's a great way to, to wrap up this interview today, Steve and Jonathan. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, it's been awesome. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, special thanks to Steve. Again, he's been on a number of times and his partner, Jonathan from Cast and Hugh coming on and sharing a little bit about JTBD. It's all I can do not to say, you know, yeah, you know me, but. Uh, <laughs> you done with JTBD? Yeah, you know me. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, yeah, I feel like that leads us down a bad path. But anyway. Thanks for, I appreciate them coming on and spending some time. So again, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health and the TPS report. Uh, So go sign up for that. And then uh, before we get out of here for the week, uh, some recommendations. What do you have today, Chris? Reed, I'm going to recommend something that maybe is not a big surprise. It's an app I just uh, recently downloaded. Yeah, I am on threads and that's what I'm going to recommend. Oh, there it is. (laughs) We knew it was coming. But I downloaded Threads when it first came out, and I was one of like 10 million people that did. So I'm not alone there. And I've been out here. I haven't been really as active. Well, I don't know. Uh, It's a new platform. Let's put it this way. I've been certainly on there, looking, checking things out, exploring it a little bit. Yeah, I've been promoting our podcast on there as well. It's an application that's kind of built on the Instagram framework. And so immediately when you join, it pulls over all your Instagram followers and says, do you want to follow them? But I deliberately didn't do that because I want Instagram to be its own separate hub. Now, don't get me wrong. I know this is all part of the meta family, right? And I know there's problems around privacy, et cetera. But I tell you, logging into threads feels like you're at the early days of what Twitter was a long time ago. 
there's a, a number of notable things that are not there, as you pointed out, Reed, on one of your threads that you put in. Like there's no hashtags, there's no direct messaging and stuff like that. But it's really interesting to see how people are taking to this new platform. And maybe it's a flash in the pan. Maybe it'll go through the trough of disillusionment after it gets over the hype cycle and no one will start to use it after a while. But right now, it's very interesting. And uh, as a friend of the show, Greg Matthews said, if you are a provider or a health system that's out there, you might as well jump on and claim your name in the very least to get your name reserved in case this platform takes off. But I recommend going on threads. If you want to follow me, I'm Chris Boyer on threads. That's my recommendation. Well, along those lines, Dr. Vardabedian, Dr. Brian Vardabedian has been on the show a number of times to one of my threads that I posted about like, you know, so now what kind of a thing he posted, I miss jelly, (laughs) which I'd forgotten that platform even existed. So anyway, it's, it's pretty great. And uh, yeah, I'm up to 92 followers. So, you know, making some headways over here on uh, on threads. I'm at 119 followers, so I'm kind of winning the threads clout score. I'm yeah, winning. that's all we need is another clout score. <laughs> anyway, well, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, uh, be sure to connect with us there if you haven't. But uh, good recommendation. I am actually going to recommend the Apple Watch Ultra. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I broke down. I've only purchased one Apple Watch ever for myself, at least. But broke down. Uh, decided I wanted something I could wear in the water and, and a little more rugged and, and that kind of thing. And so I got the uh, the watch Ultra. And, uh, I like it. I haven't had it, you know, a ton of time. A little, you know, week and a half or something. And uh, I've enjoyed it. It's been cool. I can see at a glance upcoming meetings and you know when we go to the pool and stuff like that. You know, temperature outside and. All kinds of stuff. But I like it. I like the way it fits. I like the way it looks. I went with the Alpine Loop watch band. The coolest party trick is that you can set it to where, like, when you go in the water, like, the screen doesn't react. Because, again, yeah. apparently, I guess, with the if you were swimming, the pressure against the water, it potentially is like a phantom click on the screen or whatever. So it doesn't hurt it. But it just keeps the screen from changing around if you're, like, splashing around in the water or swimming or something like that. So, anyway... When you get out of the water, you hold down the little digital crown to like unlock it, so to speak. When you do that, it actually expels the water out of the little speakers and stuff. It like shoots out the side of the watch. Really? <laughs> oh, it's, it's the greatest party trick ever. <laughs> so again, not a good reason to buy the watch, but if you have one, it is kind of neat. That's really cool. What a great recommendation. Yeah. 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 So there you go. All right, folks, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for yet another episode of Touchpoint, episode 340. Again, check out the website, touchpoint.health. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.